It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. Yeah, the president sounded like he's concerned about it, but no specifics, no change in policy. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. On Thursday, President Biden announced the end of the U.S. combat mission in Afghanistan will move from September 11th to August 31st. This as the Taliban continues to gain ground across the country of Afghanistan. Pentagon officials are observing the Taliban's advances in Afghanistan with deep concern. And on Sunday, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby told Fox the Pentagon encourages Afghan allies to step up and defend their country amid the pullout of U.S. forces. On the home front, the 2021 Conservative Political Action Conference was held in Dallas, Texas this weekend. Among the major topics of discussion, the teaching of critical race theory in schools and who will be the GOP candidate for president in 2024. The convention closed out on Sunday with an appearance from former President Donald Trump, who won the straw poll there overwhelmingly. For this and more, we'll bring in our all-star panel this week, Wall Street Journal columnist Bill McGurn, Democratic strategist and syndicated talk show host Leslie Marshall, and co-founder of The Dispatch and host of The Remnant podcast, Jonah Goldberg. All right. Well, listen, there's a lot going on. Let's start with CPAC and kind of the state of the Republican Party. Jonah, um, you know, listening to the speech of President Trump, uh, listening to the crowd there, we've paid attention to some CPACs in years past. But clearly he has uh, a lot of sway with that group and maybe even other Republicans. Oh, sure. I mean, he's still, if not the front runner for 2024, he's he's the kingmaker in terms of having um, such outsized influence over primaries and, you know, uh, in the midterms. So, I mean, he's he's an immensely powerful person I within the GOP. Um, I don't put an enormous amount of state, though. I've never put a lot of stake in CPAC straw polls, except for the sort of literary, you know, the sort of psychological value of them. President Ron Paul, for example. Yeah. But, you know, and, and this one in particular, you know, he got what, 98 percent approval and he won the, 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 you know, the straw poll and all that. Uh, it, it reminds me a little bit of when Richard Nixon was once asked if he believes in overpopulation, if the world was overpopulated. And he allegedly said, of course I do. I mean, everywhere I go, I see huge crowds. If you don't like Donald Trump at this point, the idea that you would be going to CPAC in Texas seems pretty unlikely to me. And so it was basically a poll of his biggest fans who were there like it was a Star Trek convention or some other, you know, hobbyist thing. It was it was um 
I, I'm I'm actually shocked shocked that he didn't get 100 percent approval poll right. in in CPAC. But Bill, I guess the trying to get to the political power of Donald Trump now uh, in the Republican Party as you look towards 2022 first, but then 2024. And what that means in the wake of January 6th and everything he has said, including this weekend, about that day and about kind of the state of the party. Yeah, absolutely, Brett. Look, I think he has a, a tremendous influence in the Republican Party. I personally don't think he's going to run again. Um, I think that they all follow the Gingrich rule, is to, which is to never say you're not going to run because then people stop paying attention to you. And I don't think he would want to risk a loss, which I think is probable. He'd have to get back a lot of votes that he lost the last time around. Now, who knows what happens if Joe Biden tanks, if he if something happens and Kamala Harris takes takes over and we have a Jimmy Carter kind of situation, maybe. But I don't think so. I think what we're seeing now is where he does have his influence on other candidates and so forth. And maybe he could, um, you know, it's possible that he could use his influence to kill a candidate that he didn't think was sufficiently um, pro Donald Trump. But I, I, I really think that this is um, that the idea that he's going to run again is, is very doubtful. Leslie, who, which Republican in 2024 do Democrats fear most right now? Mm, I would say it's not Donald Trump. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, not somebody who's going to have the, uh, the, the the mindset of a Donald Trump. I think it's going to be more of a Reagan Republican um, and, you know, somebody who is going to uh, pull and unite uh, the party. Um, and, and, and the reason for that is if you just look at the numbers, I want to disagree with Bill and agree with Jonah. Uh, CPAC, the people that went to CPAC, this specific CPAC convention uh, in Texas, were there to see Donald Trump. So I agree he should have got 100 um, percent. I do think he will run. I do think it's possible he'll be the nominee. Republicans better than my party, the Democrats, do unite and get behind the candidate more so uh, than my party. And there are people that have done it before and I think could do it again, hold their nose and, and vote for a Donald Trump. But could he win? We all know that statistically it is hard to unseat an incumbent president. It's been done, certainly. It was done to Donald Trump. We also know, looking at the numbers, that although maybe not by much, they lost, they being the Republicans, the House, the Senate, and of course, the biggest house, which is the White House, the Oval Office. And in addition to that, um, you know, uh, you know, go, going forward, what's going to happen? Joe Biden, you know, has some pretty high uh, approval ratings and there are Republicans that liked him and voted for him and a lot more people who voted uh, for Joe Biden. And I, I think some people, especially Republicans like the, you know, the Liz Cheney type of Republicans um, know that Donald Trump has power in their party, but he does not have power with the majority and does not want to and they do, don't want to give him that much power, perhaps uh, ever again. Um, I, I don't think there's anybody right now, Brett, to be honest with you, that really uh, scares Democrats uh, yet at, at this point. Like back in the day, I would have said, you know, a few years ago with Nikki Haley. But that's just not the case because Donald Trump and his influence in a portion of the party uh, definitely um, weighs in uh, to that picture. Yeah. Last thing on this, I, I, Jonah, for Republicans as a party. Um, this seems like a bumpy road because as the speeches continue, the CPAC, the campaign rallies and 
at least a large portion of that speech deals with a stolen election and that whole uh, pitch. We, we've said this on this podcast many times. Um, Donald Trump lost this election. Uh, there were dozens and dozens of lawsuits uh, and not one overturned enough votes in any state. That's not to say that there weren't anomalies, that there wasn't any fraud across the country, that there it, it just he doesn't have enough votes in different states to win, period, the end. And we've said that definitively. But to continue to have these speeches, Jonah, th- there is a point at which some Republicans have to say one way or another, and they risk losing some of the base. Yeah, this whole issue is essentially a wedge issue that divides Republicans and unites everybody else in the country. And, you know, the cliche has been for a while now is that, you know, Republicans can't win without Donald Trump, but they also can't win with Donald Trump. And the meaning is that there are enough disaffected Republicans who don't like Trump and certainly don't like the stolen election lie um, that the issue just simply repulses voters that the Republicans could otherwise get. If Trump made, you know, the issue, the defining issue of his post-presidency, stuff like immigration or some other issue that could actually attract more voters than repel, um, that would be one thing. But there's, you're not going to cobble together a winning coalition of votes that gets you over you know, maybe maybe not even for the Republican primaries, but certainly in general elections, if the Republican Party gets boiled down to a single litmus test issue, as we've just seen in Alaska with with Lisa Murkowski being denied the endorsement of her own party as an incumbent, which is crazy. Um, you could see how this this turns the Republican Party for as long as Trump is doing this and demanding personal loyalty on this issue, it turns the Republican Party into a rump party because it just reject it just repels more voters than it attracts. Yeah, I mean, Bill, there are so many issues. There's the border. There's the economy. There's overseas foreign policy. There's the Middle East that he could be focusing on. He could even focus on election integrity and say, I accept what what happened, but we need to fix the system. So. You know, the questions aren't there, but that's not the pitch he's making. And I guess that is concerning for some Republicans. Well, I I think it's very telling. Um, I mean, it's so hard to get a clear opinion on Donald Trump because uh, so many people just hate him and so many people just love him. And the ones who hate him can't admit, you know, anything that might redound to his um, his benefit. And the ones who love him can't admit that maybe he's making a mistake. You know, the the kind of flip side of what you were saying, Brett and Jonah alluded to it, is that um, one of the things uh, one reason I think he's not going to run and that he doesn't have the pitch is that since uh, November, um, his campaign has all been about himself and how he was robbed of an election. Now, put aside whether you think he was robbed or wasn't robbed, just in cold-blooded terms, it means all his pitches have been about himself. When he ran in 2016, one of the reasons that he kind of electrified the country in some ways is that he appealed to people. And a lot of ordinary people that are not 
um, not rioters and not people that were there on January 16th. They felt that they had a guy who understood their concerns. He's not talking about that. And I think I think he made a big mistake early on that um, he made this kind of the litmus test and so forth, the support for his claims about the election. He made that the litmus test in Georgia. And we lost two senators. And of course, Republicans are a lot more vulnerable to the Biden plan because of that. So it just it's interesting to me that I think he's not on a good path, like talking about himself rather than in his first campaign. I mean, he had his ego and his flamboyance, but a lot of it was bread and butter. What do people care about, whether it's the border, whether they feel their jobs are being offshored to China, whatever it was, um, they felt that they had a voice. I'm not sure a lot of people are going to feel that this time who who didn't who weren't already with them. You know, he would have to get some um, new votes on that. Now, the wild card in all this and the wild card in the races, I don't expect Joe Biden's popularity to hold because I think his policies are going to be disastrous. And um, I don't doesn't look to me like Kamala Harris is any better. So that could change a lot, depending on if it got bad and how bad it got. It could change the uh, equation quite a bit. But that's the only way if if the Biden Harris administration turned into an utter catastrophe, then maybe people say, see, you should have listened to me. But I short of that, I I just I don't think he's going to run. I don't think he's going to take the risk of losing again. Um, you know, people often point back. Well, first of all, I, I run into a lot of Republicans who, you know, are diehard Trump policy supporters, but not Trump personality supporters or Trump Twitter life supporters or Trump January 6th, what he did and said supporters. But they love, love, loved his policies. And one thing I heard was, you know, how dynamic he was and funny he was on the campaign trail. But I point back to 2016, where for the last three and a half weeks, if you remember, candidate Donald Trump was on the teleprompter and he was delivering speeches that were policy speeches um, really on the teleprompter. It was no longer the impromptu um, off the cuff stuff. Uh, Leslie, last word on this before we move on to Afghanistan. Well, it's interesting, Brett, because you started with this before um, you had gone to Jonah and Bill about um, election integrity would have been a better uh, path, if you will, uh, for the former president in his speeches, um, you know, at these conventions like CPAC and other appearances he's making. And I would agree wholeheartedly um, because one of one of the things you just said it that attracted him was not just the celebrity and the cult of personality uh, of Donald Trump, but it was the policies. And I think people are, I mean, honestly, between now and 2024, to to say they're going to eye roll and be so overhearing how the election was stolen. But one of the things that he is risking doing when you just look at the numbers and the polls in the Republican Party and their trust or lack of trust in our electoral process, because he's not honing in on election integrity or other, uh, you know, key issues or or policies that he could run on if he chooses to run again uh, for the 2024 election. I I think there are going to be less Republicans that come out, even if he is on the ticket uh, to vote because they simply don't trust the process because he's been fanning the flames, uh, you know, and pouring gasoline on that lack of trust. And I think it not only would hurt him if he were to run again, but it certainly hurts the Republican Party and other Republicans who run in local, uh, you know, races, gubernatorial races uh, and for the House and the Senate uh, throughout the country as well. Guys, let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this. 
This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. I want to talk about a couple foreign policy issues. One is Afghanistan. Jonah, uh, watching how this process has unfolded uh, has been interesting. And obviously the Taliban have not waited. They are moving quickly. Uh, and there's a sadness to it after all that we've spent in blood and treasure as a country uh, to try to help Afghanistan get on its feet. Yeah, the whole thing is heartbreaking. And um, I think that this is one of these issues where, first of all, there is so much blame to go around. You know, the only people who I have nothing but praise for are the men and women who risk their lives fighting over there. But how the Bush administration handled it, how the Obama administration handled it, how the Trump administration handled it. None of these things are going to be remembered with a lot of praise by historians and certainly how the Af the non-Taliban Afghan governments um, being corrupt and uh, not up to the challenge that they were presented with. Uh, they deserve a lot of criticism. All of that said, I think this is a, I, I honestly think this is a blunder. This is one of these issues where intellectually, um, I think one thing and emotionally, I think another. And I really hope the intellectual part of me is wrong. I think that the the casualty rate, um, the costs and blood and treasure to the United States were acceptably low. It doesn't mean I'm happy about even a single American life lost, but um Controlling Kabul, which is all you need to do, really do to prevent the Taliban from turning Afghanistan into a safe haven, keeping our air base there um, just makes sense as a matter of realpolitik, regardless of what happened in the last 20 years. And it wasn't an endless war, as people like to say. It was um, a low intensity for the United States forces conflict for the last few years. And, um, you know, and the Biden administration says they want to move on to you know, grand geostrategic threats like uh, our relations with China and Russia and protecting democracies in the developing world and all these kind of things. Well, having listening posts and an air base and a military presence right in the middle of all of that just makes an enormous amount of sense. And and keeping the country from going under to a bunch of, you know, medieval uh, monsters uh, seems like a really valuable uh, side benefit as well. So, I mean, I, I think the Taliban is going to take over. I think it's going to be relatively quick. It's like a run on a bank. You don't have to have perfect information. You just have to have fear that if you don't surrender now, um, you're going to be murdered or your family is going to be murdered or your tribe is going to be murdered. And that's why we're seeing these mass surrenders to the Taliban is because they the psychology is all on their side and the Taliban is being very smart to make all of this seem inevitable and and rapid fire and so i just think it's i think it's sad and i and i i truly hope i'm wrong yeah I, i've been there a bunch probably 13 times uh covering the pentagon the white house and um there was always this expectation i think with the afghans that um that the population that because america was there there was going to be a mcdonald's on the corner and a kentucky fried chicken around the block um but it was much broader than that. I mean, there's a tribal culture in these small pockets once you get outside Kabul. But it was interesting, Bill, to hear um, Admiral Kirby this weekend say that now that the counterterrorism strategy that they're looking at is the Libyan model. Well, that didn't really work very well um, in Libya. And 
over the horizon kind of thing. Um, I, I've heard that Secretary of State Blinken, as well as Pentagon, uh, the Joint Chiefs, were advising the Biden administration to take this slower, to do it differently, uh, so that there was, as Jonah said, more of an intelligence uh, asset in Afghanistan. Yeah, look, this, there are no good models, right? I mean, Joe Biden spent the last week or so saying this is not Vietnam. Why is he saying that? Because Vietnam is what comes to mind. When we pulled out of Vietnam, we assured the South Vietnamese that we would be there if the North uh, violated the agreement. And of course, we weren't there for them. That was the first. You know, we pulled out of Iraq too early and all of a sudden ISIS controls this massive territory and is cutting off people's heads. Um, it's, you know, we, we also have had presences. I mean, another way of saying what Jonah was saying about acceptable casualties. I believe there were three deaths in Afghanistan of soldiers this year, but they were all from like car accidents, not from combat. The combat, the combat part is over. What they need is support for air operations and maybe support for occasional ground operations, but less our manpower than our equipment and know-how. I don't see why um, the Middle East is any different from Europe. You know, we have troops there all these decades after we defeated Hitler, and we have troops in South Korea and um, and Japan, and we have benefited from from the developments in those regions um, around that presence. So I I think this is a terrible mistake. I think everyone's kidding themselves that um, that it's not going to fall to the Taliban. Maybe there'll be a formal Afghan government in Kabul that isn't, um, you know, isn't technically a part of the Taliban. But if they control 80 percent of the country, it's effectively back in Taliban control. And um, I'm one of the people that remember what happened last time. We thought what happens in the mountains of Afghanistan doesn't really matter to the United States. And I think we're all pretending to ourselves. I mean, Don Rumsfeld in his confirmation hearing for defense secretary did not mention the word Afghanistan Mm -hmm. once. Um, That's obviously before 9-11. It happens. Uh, Leslie, politically, um, how this shakes out, I hear Democrats say, well, yeah, President Trump wanted to pull out all forces as fast as he could, too. Inside, uh, Lindsey Graham, other senators, and and some people at the Pentagon say that they feel that they convinced Trump to do it slower. Um, not to say that that's accurate or not, but that's how they're pitching it. If Afghanistan does fall apart, does this sit on President Biden and Vice President Harris's lap? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons so many administrations couldn't make, uh, you know, decisions or that any decision with Afghanistan, uh, you know, may not be good. Jonah said heartbreaking. And if you think about it, it's heartbreaking either way with Afghanistan, right? We find ourselves, do we bring troops home or do we add more troops there? And either way, that is uh, heartbreaking. Um, You know, Bill had spoken about and, you know, or at least uh, alluded to technical assistance and financial assistance. Both of those we can do uh, from afar. Uh, I'm not in the military. I've never served, although I come from a long line of military people. But I do trust our military and our military commanders. And General McKenzie, when, uh, you know, he told the reporters he was traveling with that, you know, look, he believes the Taliban are pursuing a military victory over the Afghan government. And we know that the Afghan government certainly cares more about themselves and lining their pockets than their people. And we've seen that, sadly, to Jonah's point uh, earlier. But 
Um, you know, and he looked, you know, and he cited the battlefield victories, but he also predicted that the Taliban will encounter significant resistance in Kabul specifically, because he said that the city, which is approximately six million people, it's larger now, it's more complex than it was back in the 1990s. And it actually has stronger, better trained and larger defenses against the Taliban. And he really thinks that the Afghanistan people and military specifically are determined to fight very hard uh, for uh, Kabul and other provincial capitals. And and I do trust that. I, look, I don't think we could be there forever. Another thing to your point, though, Brett, politically, yeah, certainly perception is reality. And if this goes to hell in a handbag, anybody in power, Joe Biden right now and Kamala Harris, the Democrats are going to be blamed. Then again, foreign policy is not on the top parade of things that voters care about, at least right now. Yeah, it depends. It could be depending on what's happening around the world. True. One last thing, Cuba, what we're seeing in Cuba with people taking to the streets, calling for freedom, calling for liberty, um, protesting. What should we take from that, considering the fact that political dissidents in Cuba, Jonah, have faced jail time and there's many who are in jail in Cuba? Yeah, I, I think for the time being, there's not a lot the Biden administration can do other than provide, uh, at least publicly, provide moral support for people who are fighting for democracy and freedom, which is something that every American president should do as a matter of bedrock American faith. Um, beyond that, uh, you know, it would be nice to see, you know, Republicans and Democrats making this a nonpartisan issue. I don't have a lot of hope for that, uh, but it's a politi- it seems to me a political no brainer for Joe Biden to go out and, you know, I mean, uh, my friend Hugh Hewitt was making this point this morning, go to, uh, you know, go to Miami and give a big sort of Berlin Wall type speech about freedom in Cuba. It will anger all of the right people in American domestic politics that Joe Biden can afford to make angry for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, and it would look like a a good bipartisan move. Other than that, I, I kind of hope that the, the Biden administration is thinking about bribing the dickens out of anybody they possibly can in Cuba to say, hey, look, you know, uh, Idi Amin went to, to to Saudi Arabia. You know, lots of people can get their villa in France or something or in Spain. If you guys turn on the regime, um, we'll help you out and just do a sort of a leverage buyout. I, I don't want to send troops into Cuba. I don't think we should. And we don't know enough right now to make that a plausible thing. But using our intelligence assets to sort of encourage the instability of the regime to see it topple would just warm the cockles of my heart. Yeah, I mean, maybe it'll work in Cuba. It definitely didn't work in Venezuela. They were promising Maduro the world to uh, get out of Venezuela. Last thing, Bill, does this indicate, um, I mean, the, the statement President Biden puts out is was pretty firm, uh, you know, a written statement about the Cuban situation. Um, is, should he do more, to Jonah's point? Well, I think we could. Uh, I think certainly we should make it clear whose side we're on in this. That you know we're not on the side of people uh, carrying chains and locking people up. You know, I don't know why we're so surprised that in Cuba, oh wow, the public doesn't like what they have. This uh, this wealthy, talented nation reduced to third world status and so forth. You know, they are highly intelligent, hardworking people. They should be a jewel of the Western Hemisphere. 
and so forth. So why are we surprised? I mean, we've had groups like the ladies in white who attend mass in white. Um, their their husbands, sons, or or um, brothers were were dissidents and stuff to to bring this. So um, why should we be surprised that they're not that they're all tired of this? And I think we shouldn't encourage them to the degree we can, maybe helping with communications or uh, whatever. And uh, I agree, I'm not I'm not saying we need to invade uh, Cuba, but I think we should help this regime out. It's been it's been a blot on the hemisphere. Um, it's been terrible. It's been um, allied with a lot of people that want mischief for the United States. They spy on us and so forth. So um, I, I think we we ought to celebrate this and make life difficult if we can. All right, panel. Thanks so much. Uh, listen, here's a bit of presidential trivia. On July 11, 1955, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed a bill including the words, In God We Trust, to appear on all paper and coin currency. Former President Eisenhower abandoned his family's Mennonite religion before joining the Army and was baptized as a Presbyterian in 1953, barely a year into his first term as president. A year later, he explained his feelings about religion in public life and why he wanted to include under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, saying, quote, we are reaffirming the transcendence of religious faith in America's heritage and future. In this way, we shall constantly strengthen those spiritual weapons, which forever will be our country's most powerful resource in peace and war. With that, that'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Bill, Leslie, and Jonah, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.